0: Download the Move app and log in with your Mamma Mia login. Head to move.mamma and use code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to such a, <laughs> a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to the Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. We all know that to take another person's life is one of the worst things we can do to a fellow human. We know there are circumstances in which we accept it was a necessary measure, like when a woman is faced with a violent partner or when we go to war. But what if a judge gave a more lenient sentence to the killer of your loved one because a law says that the victim provoked them, even though they were in fact defending themselves against their killer?
1: Family and friends of slain mum of four, Sandra Peniamina, are outraged and distressed. A law from last century means her killer's sentence has been slashed, downgraded from murder and life imprisonment to manslaughter and 16 years behind bars.
0: Today, we look at an outdated law that has allowed some to excuse their violent behaviour and essentially get away with murder. Just a warning that today's episode discusses issues around domestic violence and describes an incident of domestic violence in detail. If this is too much for you, perhaps step away from this one, and if you're struggling with issues in your relationship, make sure you reach out to the team at 1800RESPECT. It's 2016. Queensland mother of four, Sandra Penyamina had just returned from a trip to New Zealand and had made the decision to start sleeping separately from her husband. She'd met another man who'd posted pictures of them together while she was away. Her husband saw those photos and was understandably upset. He spoke to his family members about his wife's alleged infidelity before he confronted her about it at their family home in Kippering in Brisbane. They started to argue in the bedroom. When Sandra refused to hand over her mobile phone and show her text messages, her husband lashed out and punched her in the face. Sandra, fearing for her safety, ran to the kitchen and grabbed a knife to defend herself. He wrestled the knife out of her hand, grabbing the blade, cutting himself in the process. He punched her again, before stabbing her 29 times. 15 times the blade went into her head, the tip later found embedded in her skull. Sandra didn't give up, though. She fought hard, dragging herself outside, hiding behind the car in the driveway... That the attack didn't stop. Her husband followed her, throwing her onto the driveway, kicking her before picking up a concrete bollard and bringing it down onto her head, ending her fight. In 2018, the 41-year-old, who'd never denied killing his wife, was sentenced to life behind bars for Sandra's murder. But in 2020, he won an appeal in the High Court, allowing him to be retried on the lesser charge of manslaughter with a defence of provocation. He claims that he was provoked when Sandra armed herself with a knife after he had already assaulted her and that she had cut his hand with that knife during the struggle when he'd grabbed the blade. So how is it that someone in self-defence who arms themselves with a weapon to stop an assault can be found to have actually provoked their attacker into a worse assault and even their own murder? Professor Heather Douglas teaches and researches in the area of criminal law and procedure at the Melbourne Law School. Her expertise on legal responses to domestic and family violence is internationally recognised and she coordinates the National Domestic and Family Violence Benchbook. Heather, where did the Provocation Defence originate and what was it designed to do when it was created?
1: So the Provocation Defence is a really old defence and it was created in a time where men often fought duels to protect their honour and in the context of that, maybe someone would get killed and the Provocation Defence was developed in order to allow them to avoid the death penalty which existed for murder at that time. So it's an old English defence and it stayed in Australia in place since the Middle Ages really, so it is very old.
0: And is it still everywhere across Australia or is it just in Queensland where we've seen this recent case?
1: Well, like so many criminal laws in Australia, they're different in every state and territory, so that's the same with the provocation defence. So we've seen it abolished, first of all, in Tasmania, and then it was abolished in Victoria. It's also been abolished in Western Australia. So it has completely gone off the books in those three states, and in all of the other states across Australia, there's been some kind of reform across the last few years to try to make sure that it wasn't unfairly applied. So what we've seen in recent years is people concerned that provocation is applied in cases where there's like a homosexual advance to someone and they kill in response to that. And then they've argued provocation, reduction from murder down to manslaughter. But also, more commonly probably, it's been used in circumstances where men kill their wives, often in response to concerns that their partner is leaving them or has recently left them or is having an affair with someone. So that's kind of where we see it most commonly used, I think, these days. But I have to say, too, it's also been used by women responding to partners in the context of a really long history of domestic and family violence. So when states and territories have thought about reforming the defence and whether to abolish it or not, there have been concerns that we will lose a defence in that context of domestic and family violence – And this is in context of states where there is a mandatory life imprisonment penalty, which is the case in Queensland. So Queensland was looking at reforming the provocation defence back in the sort of mid-2000s. There was lots of discussion about what to do with the provocation defence, but the Parliament was steadfast that the Law Reform Commission, for example, couldn't look at changing the mandatory life imprisonment penalty. So there was a real reluctance to withdraw provocation from the suite of defences available. So what they did in Queensland was try to reform it so that it would not be available in situations like a homosexual advance or a sexual advance, a nonviolent sexual advance, or in situations where, you know, a male partner became angry and jealous that a partner was leaving them or separating them or starting an affair of some kind.
0: Can we just have a look at this particular case in Queensland? How is it that the jury would have accepted that he was provoked when he was the one who initiated the assault and that the knife that was pulled was in self-defense and then the fact that he was cut with that knife but it was him who grabbed the knife to try and wrestle it off of her. How could the jury see that as him being provoked?
1: Okay, we've got to remember that first of all, even to start to access provocation defence, we've got a situation where the prosecution have to approve all the elements of murder so that the person intended to kill and did kill the other person and then provocation comes in as a partial defence. So it's not a complete defence, it just reduces murder down to manslaughter. So that's what the defence allows. Now, in Queensland, what they tried to do was to remove a woman's choice of relationship or a partner's choice about a relationship, that is to leave or to have an affair or to do one of those kinds of things, from the possibility that that could be seen by the jury as a provocative act, except in exceptional circumstances. Now, what happened in the Penny Mina case, which has recently been before the High Court, is there's been lots of debate throughout all of the court systems, so from the Supreme Court to the Court of Appeal in Queensland and then up to the High Court, about exactly what the provocation was in that case. So, basically, there'd been some suggestion that Penny Mina's partner was having an affair, or he thought she was, and they were having an argument about that, and he was violent towards her and he hit her. They went into the kitchen and she grabbed a knife because she was fearful of him and he grabbed that knife from her and then stabbed her many times and then hit her on the head with a concrete bollard causing her death. Now, in that kind of chain of events, we could see the provocation as that last event of her holding a knife at him Or we could see the chain of events in context, and if we saw it in context, we would see that the provocation is based on her decision to leave the relationship, and so really we shouldn't be seeing that as a provocative act. But if we see it as her holding the knife, then we might see that as the provocation for him to respond the way that he did. So this was the debate that the courts were having, and actually the Supreme Court, so the original trial court, and then actually the Court of Appeal in Queensland, both thought the provocation should be seen in context, not just her grabbing the knife, but the whole lead up and the argument and the allegations about the affair and so on. Whereas the high court thought that it should be limited to that situation of her brandishing this knife. That's the provocative act. So that's where we have the difficulty. So really, when it comes back for a second retrial in the Supreme Court in Queensland, the judge hasn't got any choice, but to direct the jury along those lines And then the jury don't really have a lot of choice, really, because if they see that brandishing the knife as the provocation, then that would suggest that that's, you know, a provocative act and probably would let someone kind of respond, perhaps in the way that Petty Amina did.
0: What kind of precedent does this set then for, say, another woman in another domestic violence situation pulls a knife to defend herself, then that man can see that as a very legitimate reason to murder her. Is that the kind of dangerous precedent we're looking at setting here?
1: Yes, I think it's a real problem because what essentially the High Court have said, that it's really up to the defendant to identify what the provocative act was. So, of course, a defendant is going to identify that single incident of drawing a knife as the provocation, and they're going to say they relied on that to lose control. That was what made them lose control and respond the way they did. So, yeah, I think it does definitely set that precedent, and really the only way we could change that at this stage is, I think, by law reform.
0: Now, I know you've said there are some issues with that law reform that it could actually hurt people that it is designed to protect as well. So how do we reform these laws to make sure that those people who use it in a sense as self-defence as opposed to those who are using it as a way to explain a murder?
1: I mean, in my opinion, and this is my personal opinion and views differ, of course, but I think that the mandatory penalty for murder should be removed and that provocation should also be abolished. And then we would probably see that in a situation like Petty Amina, he would get life imprisonment for murder he wouldn't have access to the provocation defense but we would be able to adjust the penalty in a case where someone was deserving you know for example a woman who had responded with violence to a provocative act and self defense wasn't available for whatever reason she could get a reduced sentence but she would still be guilty of murder but she would get a reduced sentence this is essentially the approach they've taken in western australia where the provocation defence has been abolished, and there's an expectation that you will get life imprisonment for murder, but there is flexibility in certain exceptional circumstances, for example, in a situation where there might have been a history of domestic and family violence.
0: Justice Peter Davis handed down the reduced sentence of just 16 years saying Sandra's killer's actions were prolonged, vicious, ferocious, and that this was actually an incredibly bad example of manslaughter, but that he had to accept the jury's determination that he had, in fact, established the provocation defence. He will now serve at least 80% of his 16-year sentence before he's eligible for parole, but he'll then be deported upon his release. And while he wept in court, with the relief of knowing he won't spend his life behind bars, Sandra's family her children especially, will now live with this extra pain on top of the loss of their daughter, sister and mother. Her sister saying this in her victim impact statement. Our hearts will never be mended. Our lives have changed in every aspect. The boys have had to adjust to a whole new life. They are growing up without any parents. Sandra will miss seeing her boys grow. She has already missed her youngest's first day at primary school. She has missed the boys playing their first league games and missed them performing at school. Every day, we face an emotional battle knowing Sandy is not here with us. You took a life that was not yours to take. We miss her dearly. This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. And did you know that just by being in the Mamma Mia world, you're helping people across the globe? When you read or listen to our content, you're helping to fund girls in schools in some of the most disadvantaged countries in the world through our partnership with Room to Read. We're currently funding 300 girls in school every day and our aim is to get to 1,000. Find out more about Mamma Mia at mamamia.com.au or download the app.